0: Good morning church. How is everyone doing this morning? So good to be with you. If you were out traveling or sick last week, good to have you back. Welcome. Good to see you. It's so fun to be in a church of of diverse backgrounds, isn't it? We have some in our church here that have roots in the Baptist tradition, some in Presbyterian tradition, some in Pentecostal charismatic tradition. So some clap, some are very responsive, others <laughs> like all sit in the back, right? We have those in the back they are like, Oh, this is my place. I'll just be back here. Thank you. And all are welcome in this church. Amen. The grace of the grace in the Lord Jesus is his welcome is for all people. So if you haven't yet, uh, let me invite you to, to take a hold of your Bible. Open with me to First Timothy chapter four. This morning we're we'll gonna be looking at verses one through sixteen. You know, we're a young, young church, uh, kind of replanting church that's seeking to be shaped by the word of God, seeking to be shaped by the scriptures. We want our lives to live in accordance with what God says, what his word reveals. And we think the Bible is a great gift to us. Amen. It reveals the path of life and joy and flourishing. The Bible ultimately is a story about Jesus and his love and his invitation towards us but we think the Bible has great wisdom, and we want our church to be shaped by what the Bible teaches. So, that being said, there's some instruction that Paul gives Timothy this morning on how the church, what, what kind of things the church should be doing, what kinds of things the church should be devoted to as they assemble together, as they gather together. There's a couple ordinances of what we know that Jesus has commanded of us which is what we will partake of after the sermon, the Lord's Supper, and baptism. And we had the joy yesterday of baptizing four members, four individuals in the community of our church. It was awesome. Nathan, got to ba- Nathan and Megan got to baptize Mackenzie. Loved hearing her testimony of why she wanted to get baptized and place her faith in Jesus. Nick got to baptize his two boys, Nick and Henry. So excited, Nick and Terry, to come alongside you guys as you disciple uh, disciple your boys and your kids, raise them as men of the faith. So be like your dad. What a beautiful picture, too, of Nick up there. Thank you, Christian, for that. I just thought that was so, that was so fitting. Christian took that. I didn't even make him. It was great. And Chris, honored to get to know you guys and your family. Uh, it was a joy. I, just, I felt so full of joy yesterday after the baptisms and burgers. It was a great time. Christian and Chris took some pictures Thank you guys for using your gifts to to capture that moment. I, I put some pictures up on our, our church Facebook and Instagram page if you want to take a look at that. But I, I I feel just thankful. I mean we have so much to celebrate in the life of our church, don't we? All right, before I start crying. Yes, thank you, Thomas. Let's consider First Timothy 4. All right, the last month or so, we've, we've had the, the privilege and the honor of journeying through Paul's first letter to Timothy, and we've been looking at the kind of uh, instructions he's given to the church, the household of God, the household of, of faith is what we've been looking at. How, does, how should the church conduct themselves as the family of God, as the household of God? And, and Paul wrote this letter to uh, his kind of son in the faith, a young pastor he was mentoring, to encourage him there were some false teachers and teachings that he was experiencing some that some pressure from outside the church and it seems like those who had arisen in the church who had left kind of sound doctrine or healthy teaching and it, it didn't encourage godliness so Paul wrote to Timothy to encourage him in sound teaching which promotes godliness this false teaching it just promotes vain speculation endless debate. It it doesn't lead to a life of the of faith and, and godliness. Doesn't help people grow in their love for Jesus. So Paul gave the church instructions on what kind of what kind of people should lead in the church. And these 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 qualified people, these men in the church, should be characterized the godliness that, that the gospel produces in their families and there's examples of deacons and their wives they should demonstrate the fruit of the gospel that they are claiming to teach this will be there's kind of two offices of the church elders and deacons and after paul describes kind of qualifications for these two leaders he he describes the mystery of godliness and the mystery of godliness is not our approach to god it's not the techniques that we might have it's god's approach to us The mystery of godliness, the secret of godliness was revealed as Jesus comes. Jesus is the mystery of godliness. And this is the secret. And then he continues into further kind of instructions. He's going to return back to some of those, the instructions or the warnings of false teachers. He's going to uh, encourage him to continue as a faithful servant of the gospel. And then he's going to get some final instructions towards Timothy at the end of chapter 4. So 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Paul writes this, Now the Spirit expressively says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forget, forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received, With thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. That's one sentence. (laughs) Paul really packs a lot in there. And I think Paul is trying to encourage Timothy. He's trying to comfort Timothy by telling him, Okay, the Spirit has expressively said, and we're not we're not exactly told how the Spirit said this. Was this kind of direct personal revelation to Paul? Was this a prophecy in the church that had been made known by the church? We're not exactly told, but what most, what's most important is the content of that message. That in the latter times, latter times is just kind of a general way of referring to, any time from after Jesus died, rose again, and ascended, to any time he's going to come again. Right? We, we believe Jesus is coming again. He's going to make all things new. The kingdom is going to be fully and finally realized. And we're living in these latter times. We don't know how long, but the Bible, the New Testament calls these latter times. So in these latter times, there's going to be those who arise, who who will depart from the faith. So they were, they're to depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings and demons. And I think Paul is trying to encourage Timothy to let him know that, don't be surprised by this. I mean, have a burden for those who depart from the faith, but don't take this as, oh, I'm doing all this wrong. This is, the Spirit has said, God has said, this is going to happen. I, I remember coming on to freshman football team. I went to an all-guys Catholic high school, and the, the school kind of prided itself in its sports, particularly its football program. And almost everyone in the freshman class, they encouraged freshmen to try out for football and be on the football team because it was a great way to build relationships with guys and get to know school and be mentored by by upperclassmen and all this and I remember it was kind of like you know in the movies in in like boot camp the kind of typical scene of like the drill sergeant he's just like yelling at the troops and he's telling them you know some of you guys aren't going to make it you know it kind of felt like that the head football coach got up and he was just he was telling us you know not all of you guys are cut out for this and not all you guys are going to make it the the length of the season this is difficult hard work some of you guys are going to depart and there's kind of a strange, like, there's kind of a, a comfort that goes along with when a mentor or a coach tells you that there's going to be some people who, who are going to leave. It helps prepare you. And this happened, even my whole high school class, we started with about 130 guys. <laughs> my senior year, it was like maybe 90, you know, wow. all guys, Catholic school. Not, not everyone's cut out for that, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> right, but I think Paul's point here is to encourage and comfort Timothy. And he knows Timothy is a younger pastor that he might feel that, you know, kind of worry or or you know, what's going on? Am I doing something wrong? And and he's telling him there's this is gonna happen. There's gonna be those who are led astray by he he describes deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Now, what would you expect Paul to say in hearing those two phrases? Sacrifice of children, right? Something super demonic. Blood sacrifice, right? What would you expect him to say, right? (laughs) Something, you know, blood oath, something like really abusive and dark and, you know, for horror movies, that kind of stuff. What does he say? I thought that was, it's striking to me. Those who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food, right? We might think about satanic, satanic, demonic influence like how the serpent first tested Adam and Eve, right? He, t- he tempted them to believe that God wasn't good. He tempted them to rebel against God. He, he tempted them to kind of give into self-indulgence, self-centeredness, defining good and evil for yourself, right and wrong, apart from God, right? That's kind of demonic influence. But it seems Paul is also saying here that it's not... Demonic influence is not just about doing something that's against the revealed will of God. It's also adding to it, requiring something that God himself doesn't require. Abstinence from certain foods, putting rules requiring the avoidance of something that God didn't say to avoid. That is also demonic. That is also evil. It's strong language. And some of the strongest words that Jesus had against people were those who thought they knew God, but they really didn't. Some of the strongest words that Paul has were from those who thought that they were teaching the, the teaching of Jesus or the right way, the true righteousness, but they, they weren't. The strongest words of Paul are against those who teach that acceptance, right standing, righteousness is found in what you do or what you don't do. Your acts are your works. And he was so passionate about this because it undercuts the gospel that's received by grace through faith. It's not just about doing the wrong things. It's about doing the right things in the wrong ways sometimes too. Setting up laws that undercut the need for grace. You make it unneeded. Religion, I'm using this term in the kind of negative sense. Religion is, is very contrary to the Christian faith because it says this. I must obey to be accepted. I have to earn. I have to obey to earn right standing with God. This old, old dead guy, of course, uh, this guy named Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King, an older guy than that, the German guy, Martin Luther, he described this dynamic as kind of the default mode of the human heart, religion. And author and pastor Tim Keller describes that our hearts are, our hearts in kind of this. Uh, religion, earned, I got to work for acceptance. This is kind of like if we were like a computer and it was a, this was the default mode. It's just going to revert back to that. And the computer operates automatically in default mode unless it's changed. You have to go into your settings. Right? I have an iPhone. iPhones kind of naturally come into a, like the light white mode. And I like to read my text dark with white writing. i have a little bit dyslexic. It just helps me. I have to change the default mode. Our heart's our host default mode is, is religion in the sense of we, we get our sense of worth and acceptance. It rises and falls based on our, our behavior, our performance, our actions. We disobey. We think we're not accepted by God. And even after we come to believe in the gospel message, we're still prone to, to believe this. This is why I think singing the gospel, being reminded of the gospel, observing the gospel, hearing the gospel preached is so formative for our souls because we need to hear that we are accepted by Christ and we obey out of this. So, so Forbidding marriage, requiring abstinence is not just a small infraction upon healthy teaching. It undercuts the very heart of Christian teaching. Anything that's added to the gospel, anything that's elevated to the point of must alongside belief. Paul says, deception, the source is demonic. That gives us a sense of the severity in which Paul is writing. The importance of clear gospel preaching and teaching. Amen? Mm-hmm. And marriage and food are two examples of things that God has created to be received with thanksgiving. This is verse four. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Now, Paul's not saying here, eat as much as you want, indulge yourself to the point of obesity as long as you've prayed about it. (laughs) Paul's saying there's an order, there's a design laid forth in the Scriptures, and the Scriptures themselves support marriage and food. Isn't that awesome? In the gospel, the salvation and life and redemption renewal comes through Jesus' work. It's received by faith. By sheer grace alone, it's not achieved by our devotion and our self-denial or these, uh, uh, these practices, these strict kind of beating of the body into submission. Food, marriage, sex, it's set apart by the word and God of prayer. In other words, it's, there's an order, there's a design to which God has created these gifts to be enjoyed. They're good. Food is good, amen? Amen. Continues in verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, or brothers and sisters, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of every value, or value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive, because we have set our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So good teaching, sound doctrine leads to godliness. False doctrine, unhealthy teaching, as Apostle Paul wrote in the beginning of the other, promotes fruitless discussion, doesn't lead to godliness, doesn't produce a love that comes from a pure faith and sincere faith. And the church, Paul's writing here, is to be nourished by the words of faith and good teaching. And he says, don't waste your time with pointless myths. Other translations say, don't waste your time arguing over godless ideas and old wives' tales. Instead, he says, train yourself for godliness. This word train is is in the original language where we get the word gymnasium. So it's, other translations might use the word exercise or discipline yourself. I I love the way the old King James writes. Exercise thyself rather unto godliness. Exercise thyself. Love that. Train. It means to develop a person's behavior by instruction and practice. And the purpose is not simply greater knowledge. The purpose is godliness. Doing certain things, developing habits and practice for the purpose of godliness. This is what Paul is trying to Timothy. Train yourself. For godliness, and we know the mystery of Christ. Paul's already written. The mystery of Christ is the mystery of godliness is Christ. It's this union with Christ, this communion with Christ. It's it's not our approach to God; it's His approach to us. But that doesn't mean that we can't do things that help us grow in our in in grace. Makes sense. There are things there are certain things that we can do that help us grow in grace. Throughout church history, there have been certain practices that have been uh, come to be called the spiritual disciplines. And some, uh, it, some older, you know, in the older church tradition, they, they would call these means of grace, which means of grace not in the sense of you do these things to earn the grace of God, but you do these things to enjoy the grace of God. Yeah. These are channels in which God has laid forth that we kind of put ourselves in the place of, and we are blessed by the presence, the promises, the word of God. Does That make sense? It's an important dynamic not to, not to get those things switched up. And we know, right, if an athlete wants to improve, wants to increase their skill, they must discipline himself or herself in a certain practice. If an individual wants to remain healthy, they must discipline themselves not to eat certain things. There there has to be a certain kind of self-control not to drive by a McDonald's and stop every time you smell those delicious fries. (laughs) If we were simply to follow our noses, we might just engorge ourselves. Is that the right word? Engorge. Gorge. Gorge ourselves on McDonald's. There's there has to be a certain and I'm I'm learning. I'm really I'm really struggling, guys, with coming to grips of the fact that my body is aging and I can't eat what I used to eat. It is really not fun. I mean I am eating the, I can eat the same amount and then my body grows. It's like I get bigger. <laughs> yeah. Everyone's over here like, "Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the club, Daniel." <laughs> there's a and and Stephanie's helping me see there's an increasing need for exercise, right? Those opposed to Paul and those opposed to the gospel are claiming that these strict practices, these observance of rites, avoiding foods, withstanding from marriage, this will bring about a kind of righteousness, acceptance with God. Paul is saying, no. Your righteousness, acceptance, worth, value is received by faith in God. You can't do anything to add to that. You can't take it away. You can't add to it. It's sheer grace alone. But Paul is also not saying that we have no part to play in the journey to godliness. And for the longest time, I, you know, I've grown up in the church, and I could hear something like "train yourself to godliness" as "do it." You're not reading your Bible enough. I mean, Martin Luther prayed for three hours. <laughs> How much are you praying, you sinner? You should, read your every, you should read your Bible every day, right? If you don't read your Bible every day, you're not really a good Christian. I would, I would kind of receive it this way. And it, didn't, it, it wasn't an invitation to experience the grace and the presence of God. It was a burden that was placed upon me. And that's not the, that's not the context in which Paul is saying this. Train yourself for the purpose of godliness. He's, he's inviting him to the path of joy, life, fellowship, of enjoying the grace of God. These disciplines are the channels, they're conduits of grace. You're, you're placing yourself in a path of enjoying the grace of God. And, and Paul's saying, Timothy, you have to be continually renewed, nourished by true, healthy teaching in order to, to renew and help nourish others. There is to be a kind of intentionality and focus in this path towards godliness, of looking like Jesus. Right? When, when you become friends with a person, to, to have kind of meaningful relationship, there's a beautiful gift of friendship, isn't it? There has to be some kind of intentionality. Or why do, when, if someone, two people are interested in each other, why do they set up a date? Because they probably won't just randomly bump into each other in life. We Set a date. So what time are we going to be there? Where are we going to eat? What day is it going to be at? Those three are important things. Yeah. If you don't have those three, Don't have a date, right? (laughs) Married couples can struggle with intentionality because the dating that you used to once have to do to see each other, you're just kind of always around. (laughs) Live in the same house. Hey, there you are. I'm randomly bumping into you all the time. (laughs) If there's not intentionality, though, in relationships, they can just wither and, and die. There's not intentionality. There's not this opportunity for kind of deep, soulful, meaningful connection. The, the inner person, the soul, the hidden person of the heart is, is, is that, that requires intentionality in relationship. And it, it requires intentionality in our, in our walk with, with Jesus. So some practices, some spiritual disciplines to enjoy Christ, to enjoy the grace of God, not to earn God's grace, but to enjoy God through them, I've found silence and solitude. So much noise, isn't there? We have these things called smartphones, which are just endless opportunities for distraction. Yes, they can be used for great connection. Right? I mean, I, we just posted pictures of people getting baptized. That's a, great, that's a great picture for Facebook and Instagram, isn't it? But there's also a lot of garbage on there. And I, get, I can get distracted. So silence and solitude, I think, is, is important. Contemplative reading of scripture. again, and some of my story is just, I got to read my Bible every day so it can kind of become like a little checklist, read a chapter or I'm in this Bible reading plan. So I've made it through the list and it's just something to kind of intellectually assent to, check off. But contemplative reading is, I want to kind of sit in this. It's not like a, like, it's not a waterfall, like a slide that you go down wild days. You know, that that black one where you just shoots you down. It's like the lazy river. Like, I want to kind of sit in God's word a little bit. I want to explore it. I want it to shape me. That takes time, contemplative, and meditation and memorization. Another thing that I've been exploring lately is if what Paul writes is, if Christ is all and he's in all, then my walk with Christ is not simply I wake up in the morning, I have my time with Christ, I close my Bible, I conclude my prayer with an amen. And then I go throughout my day without any thoughts of God or Christ. If Christ is not all, I think that we can allow kind of the circumstances of our life to teach us or to remind us or to give us opportunity to thank God. And one of the ways I've been exploring this probably the longest time is with, with food. You guys, we joke around with this, but I think it really is true that Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Yeah. I think God gave made food for us, like our bodies need food to teach us on the dependence that we need on God. Does that make sense? Like we think we need food to live, but Jesus is saying, no, 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 you don't need food. You need me and my word. So food then is a, a picture to that. It's not just to be enjoyed in itself. Like we can enjoy, yesterday Peter made some really good burgers. They were great. And that burger can become an opportunity to thank God for the cow that was ground into this patty. Amen. As we gather with the church, we can allow the encouragement that we receive from one another. Like if, if Chris hugs me, there's a sense in which I'm receiving a hug from, it's, this hug is reminding me something about the warmth and the intimacy of Christ. Right As, as my daughter smiles at me, it teaches me something about the, the pleasure and the approval of God through Anna. Does that make sense? You can allow a great lunch, the, the crisp crunch of a cucumber. Something as simple as that. If, if we were to give thanks in all circumstances, this is the way I found that it's, it's helpful to apply this. I've always been baffled by what is that? How do we do that? Yes, we have a building. We have, we have a church body that it's, there's a warmth and a joy here. There's, there's so much to be thankful for as we just look and are attentive. And I'm getting way off my my notes here. So I'm going to reel it back in. All right, allow these to invite you to trust, to give thanks for the goodness of God, the grace of God. These are some ways I think we can train ourselves for godliness. And then he writes in verse 8, "'For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of every value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come.'" Now I don't think what Paul means here is that physical exercise has no value. Because there's there's other another way that you could think about that phrase, some value is value for a little while. Now think about Paul. This is probably a guy who would just not just walk hundreds of miles but thousands. This, Paul was a man who was probably very physically tough. Yeah, he's saying physical exercise has some value. Little value. Think about it in the present age it's value for a little while. But godliness. But his point is not, in other words, his, his, his point is not to belittle physical exercise, but to elevate godliness. It's eternal, it's not temporary. He says that it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And Paul has warned and comforted Timothy that there will be some who depart from the faith. He's encouraged him and pointed out to the brothers and sisters, he's calling him to nourish the church through faith, through the words of faith. He's calling Timothy not to have anything to do with with endless myths, silly myths, but train himself in godliness. And he's also he's going to conclude by giving him some kind of final instructions pay attention to your life and to your teaching. It will not only have an impact on yourself, but on those who listen to you. Verse 11 Command to teach these things let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. As I was studying this week, it seems like a lot of people were kind of under consensus. Paul was pro- or Timothy was probably in his late 20s, maybe in his 30s. He, he, he was a young pastor. And Paul is saying, don't let anyone despise you. We kind of think, uh, I don't know what kind of connotations that has in your mind, but, but we said despise. He says, don't let anyone look down on you. In other words, don't let your manner of life be something that could be a distraction to the preaching that you have, to the teaching that you have. Don't let anyone think less of you because you're young. Don't let it, don't also don't walk around with a chip on your shoulder. Like, oh yeah. I'm going to prove it to you, you oldies. Look at me. I struggle with that. Been a young pastor, planting a church so young. So many would say, how old are you? <laughs> so if got married, how old are you? Young. Very young. Still very young. Getting older. Feeling it in my belly. Don't let anyone think less of you because you are young. But he says, set an example. Let no one look down on you because of your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example to those who believe. Right? Oftentimes in youthfulness, there can be immaturity, self-absorption, impurity, lack of faith. And Paul is calling Timothy, lead by example. Teach from example. Don't have a leadership role in which you're uh, forcing You're insisting upon your authority. Like you're hungry for it and you have to have authority. Don't lead from a place of hungry for power. You're flaunting this authority. Lead from a place of being an example. The church needs more leaders like this, amen? He says, until I come, right? Until Paul comes to Ephesus where Timothy was leading, he wants Timothy to devote himself to the public reading of scripture and to exhortation, to teaching. Exhortation could also be thought of as preaching. Exhortation is the the earnest kind of, I'm calling you to do something. I'm encouraging a response or an action. I think preaching is fundamentally calling the church to believe in Jesus and calling the church to continually believe in Jesus and calling the church to continually grow in the grace of God and the knowledge of the gospel. So that it, it plays itself out. But in, in Jewish worship, in the synagogue worship, public reading of Scripture was a common practice. There was a regular time of, of kind of reading of Scripture, and then the rabbi would teach from those, those Scriptures. And it, the, the roots are kind of, you know, Scriptures, the copies of God's Word were kind of hard to come by. The literacy rates that we might have were, were not the same in, in those days. So there was, a, there was a need for public reading of Scripture. But I also think there's something very formative as, as we gather and we we read God's word together. That's why we do this each each week before the sermon. We we read the word of God. And this this guards against false teachers and teachings who are not teaching this word of God. As the church grows in their, in their understanding of God's word, as their knowledge of God's word, they can begin to shift, sift out what is true, what is what is not true. You can be learn to grow in diligence and awareness. And he writes, Timothy, don't neglect. Neglect the gift that you have. We're not told what this gift is. It might be a preaching gift, teaching gift. There was a, seemed like a council that laid a hands on him. There was a prophecy about this. But he says, Be an example and give yourself to these things. Practice these things. Another way you could think about it is be absorbed in them. Throw yourself into these tasks. Be diligent in them so that all may see your progress. Notice the word progress. <laughs> Paul doesn't write, Immerse yourself in godliness, immerse yourself in the teaching of God's word so that all may see your arrival. (laughs) Here I am. It's progress. We are all a work in progress. All of us, every single one of us. And pastoral ministry and preaching and teaching is, is helping others in that journey, in that process. Nourishing the faith of those with the word of God. Praying for those He says, Be diligent in this. Because the, the preaching of God's word, the, the pastoral ministry, is not to be done with laziness. As one pastor said, Pastoral ministry is not a leisure activity or hobby. Sloth or indifference to the task would suck the credibility out of all that Paul is commanding Timothy to teach and do. There's to be a level of high focus, attention, engagement that, that Timothy has called forth. And he says, as others see this growth in grace, as others see this growth in godliness, as others see you devote yourself to the scriptures, it's as if they will be encouraged to do the same. So grow in these things, give yourself to these things so that others may see your progress. And he concludes in verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For so by doing, you will both save yourself and your hearers. And when the New Testament uses the term save, sometimes it can mean that the kind of specific... You know, substitution, the atonement, the salvation. A lot of times, when it says "save," it kind of refers to the general scope of, uh, you know, justification, regeneration, adoption, sanctification, glorification. So, all of those theological terms meaning when you become a Christian, you're justified by God, you're declared right in His sight, you're born again, you're regenerated, you're made new by the Spirit. Then you continue until you're glorified in the sanctification, the process of becoming more like Jesus. Sometimes the New Testament can refer to save, meaning this process. So, like you will be saved, not in the sense of ooh, it's unsure. <laughs> you guys got to press along here. Notice it's just using the sense of the sanctification of growing. In other words, Timothy's faithfulness will have a positive impact on the sanctification, the process of becoming more like Jesus, of his hearers. His faithfulness will have a a positive reinforcement on his hearers, those in the church that he's leading. It will validate his teaching and his confession, and it will also bring about sanctification. It will help in the sanctification of the hearers. Right? God alone saves. We know this, and Paul has called for this. God alone saves, but God uses his people as instruments in his hands. God uses his people to bring about the salvation of others through their words, and through their lives. And genuine salvation, an authentic experience with Jesus, looks like becoming more like Jesus. Right? Just like thunder follows lightning, a transformed life follows really meeting Jesus. So when Paul writes, you will save, he's talking about this continual process, you will help people look more like Jesus if you keep a close watch on yourself and your teaching. It's not that Timothy's persistence itself will save, but it's that his faithfulness to the word, his faithfulness to sound doctrine, to healthy teaching, living his life in accordance with godliness will help. They continue, they'll continue to be sanctified. They'll, They'll demonstrate really the true, authentic nature of their salvation. So, what can we learn from these instructions from Paul to Timothy? We know this was a letter written from Paul to Timothy. What what can we learn? What can we apply today? I think a couple things that, that can encourage us as well is one, knowing that there will be those in the church in your life who will depart from the faith. They will fall captive to deceitful spirits and teachings. They themselves will think that in their sincerity, in their devotion, their righteousness, their rightness with God, their right standing with God is is about avoiding bad things and doing good things. They'll be convinced by this. And they will find themselves abiding by requirements that are not made of them in the word of God. They're, they themselves, their, their beliefs are undercutting grace and the need for the gospel. And this, this, I think, is the sin beneath the sin. It's not simply doing wrong immorality. It's the, it's the belief underneath that belief that I don't need anyone else. Self-righteousness, believing I don't need God, I know better than God, I don't need anything, I have what it takes, I don't need anything else. I think we can take from the passage that bodily training, physical exercise is of value. It's value for a little while, but spiritual exercise, training ourselves for the purpose of godliness, devoting ourselves to growing more like Jesus is utmost value, eternal value. Not just for a little while. It's just going to go on. Good words, devotion, worship. It, it's not as if it gets you into the house. I was talking with Rick a couple of weeks ago and he had this helpful illustration of, you know, doing these things, growing in godliness, doing good works, doesn't earn you a place into the house of God. We have been called into the house of God. We have been made new by the spirit of God. We have been given a new name by the father of God. New inheritance coming to us by God. And God is saying, now that you're in my house, here's how you live. And he's a loving father. And the way that he calls us to live is actually the, the way of our, our utmost good. It's like a win win. God gets the glory and we get the joy. It's like we were, we were just on vacation a couple of weeks ago at this amusement park in Chelan. And there are certain rides that my middle daughter, Avery, she couldn't go on because she was too short. And it's not as though the Christian faith is kind of like, you have to be this tall to go on the ride, right? It's as if Jesus has said, I'm this tall, and and you can enjoy the park. And, I mean, the bar is not just like anyone can attain it. (laughs) It's not just, you got to be (laughs) 4'10". No, just imagine like an infinite bar of height, And Jesus says, I'm the only one that can be qualified for this. And I've qualified you. And here's here's the pass. Enjoy the park. And this is is the call to godliness. It's not this heavy obligation and duty and misery. Gosh, I got to pray. That's the worst. It's enjoying the grace of God. Enjoying the amusement park that Jesus has qualified us for. And it is to this end that Paul worked and he toiled. It's to this end that he called Timothy to this, and it's to this end that we are called to this. The end is godliness. And it's because we have our set, our set hope, our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people. There's also an evangelistic note in this, in this letter, and this note, and it's because we are to live in such a way that helps other people outside of the church see who Jesus is. Godliness is essential for the spread and the witness and the credibility of the gospel. So in, in light of these, I pray, church, that we would give ourselves to Christ in a way that our purpose is growth and godliness and that we would think about godliness not as a way to earn grace, but to enjoy it. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your word. Thank you that your word does not return void, that your word is living and active. Father, I pray pray that the the words and the meditation of my heart was pleasing in your sight, that you might use these words spoken to encourage and to energize the faith of those in this room and those who might listen later. Lord, thanks that, that your instructions for us are, are sufficient and clear. Lord, thank you that, that I've seen your, your work, your hand, as a church body devotes themselves to the word of God, the, the public reading of scripture, to, to preaching and teaching that, that the faith of those in the church is, is strengthened and energized, that those who were once outsiders are brought in. Those who are far from God are brought near to God. I've seen you do this work in our church. And this, this demonstrates and shows that you are the one at work. You are the one who is doing this. It's your word that's at work. Father, I pray that as, as a church leader, as other leaders in the church, that we would, we would stand behind and we would elevate this word of God because you deserve all the glory and all the honor and all the praise men can gather people around causes. We can be motivated out of guilt and fear and shame to do or to not do certain things. But I believe, Jesus, it is your grace alone that brings true life and flourishing and joy. And thank you for the work that you've done in this church. Thank you for the guilt that you have freed, the shame that you are calling out of, the the burdens that you are lifting, the freedom that you are bringing, the joy that you are cultivating in our lives. We praise you, Father, for this work. Please continue to be at work in our church. Help us to stay faithful to your word. Thank you that you have given us this church body to come alongside each other, to encourage each other. May we be a blessing to one another. May we help in the, in the building up, the encouragement, the edification of one another's faith. May we be a blessing to this community, to the city, to Des Moines and Sea-Tac and Burien and West Seattle and Federal Way and, and Auburn and anywhere we might gather our work, our play. Would we be a blessing? Would you, would you motivate us from your love to be blessing to others, that others might look at the way that we live and be drawn closer to Christ? Jesus, we need you and we, we praise you. Would you be honored as we sing to you and remember your life, death, and resurrection through communion. In Jesus' name, amen.